The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Emily Miller. She is the research and policy manager for the Family Farm Action Alliance. She's also the author of the Hot Off the Press report titled The Truth About Industrial Agriculture, A Fragile System Propped Up by Myths and Hidden Costs. Ms. Miller believes in using food and farm policy to fight for a more equitable world. She centers social and economic justice for those exploited by the agricultural system of today while helping shape the inclusive agricultural system of the future. Ms. Miller previously worked at the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, which is based in Washington, D.C. She's also worked with the Missouri Science and Technology Policy Initiative and the Iowa House of Representatives. She holds an MS in Rural Sociology from the University of Missouri and a BS from Iowa State University, where she double majored in animal science and agriculture and society. Coupled with her coalition building and advocacy experience, Ms. Miller uses a holistic lens to transform on-farm challenges into robust policy opportunities. Welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on Food Sleuth. Well, we're really delighted to have you and to raise awareness about the Family Farm Action Alliance. It's a fantastic organization doing excellent work, especially in light of devastating climate change impacts, as well as pandemic disruptions. We really need to be having this conversation so I want to start out just by saying, can you tell us a little bit about the Family Farm Action Alliance and how did you become affiliated with them? Sure. Well, Family Farm Action Alliance is a thought leader and policy developer and network builder. And what we do is we fight for bright economic future for our rural communities. And we do that by building a sustainable and inclusive economy where everyone has the right to share in the prosperity they help build. So that's a little vague. I'll, I'll drill into our three pillars, the first being anti-monopoly reform. So we really focus on lifting up independent farmers and ranchers and giving them a fair shake through anti-monopoly and antitrust reform. Our second pillar is uh, regenerative agriculture, you know, uh, an agriculture that helps build our world and our communities. And then our third pillar is building a resilient and local and regional food system. So that's kind of our work in a nutshell, and I'm happy to jump into any of those pillars as we go in our conversation. Well, how did you first become affiliated with the Alliance? So the Alliance is headquartered in Mexico, Missouri. And as you noted, I got my master's degree at Mizzou in Columbia. And so Dr. Mary Hendrickson was my advisor, and she has been in this space for a while and, and pointed me to Family Farm Action Alliance a group doing really great work. You know, I'm really interested in the concentration of power and how that's really prominent in our ag and food system. And Family Farm Action Alliance is really taking the lead on that issue within the agri-food system. 
Well, I think that the three pillars that you mentioned, the antitrust issues and anti-monopoly work, regenerative agriculture and a resilient food system really speak to the heart of what your focus is on social and environmental justice. And when I think about the challenges that we're facing in this time, namely climate change, as well as pandemics, and from what I understand, you know, this COVID will not be our first pandemic, that it's really forced us to take a look at our food system and totally change the way we think about it and how we go about doing business. So I wonder, regenerative agriculture is one of those terms, a lot like sustainable agriculture. We found that that word sustainable was really co-opted by industry. And I sense that the regenerative farming or regenerative agriculture will also be co-opted without having some sort of legal definition. So if you were to just talk to somebody about, well, what is regenerative agriculture exactly? How would you define it? That's a great question. I think of regenerative agriculture as regenerating everything around it, right? So the farmers being able to make choices about how they grow their food in a way that respects the land and, you know, build their land, build their soil health. So it's kind of regenerating that biophysical sphere. But also when you look at farmers growing food for their communities and consumers, we want, to, you know, regenerative agriculture, to me at least, should be working in an economic sphere and in a market that helps the community around it. Dollars are recycled in the community and go back to the farmer and the consumers. But then also from a health standpoint and an equitable health standpoint, folks should be able to consume food that builds their own health. It shouldn't be detrimental to their health. And also it should be available to everybody who needs to eat. So everyone. That's how I think about regenerative agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting in terms of the health lens that you are, you know, you say you're a rural Iowan at heart. And I have friends in the dietetics world who tell me that the majority, over 90% of the food eaten in Iowa is imported. So you describe this, this feed meat complex in your report, which I want to delve into because I think it's a fabulous term. But you think about what is produced in the heartland or this flyover zone that has such a great impact on the whole country. And you think about, okay, corn, soy, and livestock. And the majority of those foods or those ingredients for other foods are exported and then re-imported in the form of processed foods. That doesn't seem to make sense in terms of climate change challenges as well as the things that the pandemic really made obvious for us. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And that's why I think I'm in this work. You know, I grew up in Iowa, surrounded by cornfields, but so many folks in my community were food insecure. And at times my family was. So that's why I went to agriculture in the first place. You know, something doesn't make sense about this. And you absolutely nailed it with the feed meat complex. Right. Maybe we should at this point dive into this excellent report. And I just can't recommend it enough because I think it is very easily digestible. You've gone through an enormous volume of resources and references, which are all provided for us in the report. So people can go back to the original sources and they're excellent. 
And then you just make it so that each section is so easily understood. You've got a great introduction, and I want to just mention something from this introductory paragraph that I think really hits the nail on the head. You report that industrial agriculture is an economically flawed system that survives by externalizing its costs and spending billions of dollars on myth-based marketing campaigns. Industrial agricultural interests externalize or intentionally evade costs all along their supply chain, and these hidden or evaded costs eventually surface in the form of taxpayer-funded subsidies, a degraded environment, and poor public health outcomes. Bingo. So this report dives into how consumers, how policymakers, how everyone outside that industrial system have really been duped into thinking that this is the only way, the industrial or quote-unquote modern agriculture, that's one of those terms, that this is the only way to produce food. And in fact, you show very clearly that it's not. Yeah, absolutely. You nailed it. The paper, it goes through all of those hidden costs. And then it, it takes all of the info and the data we compile and going through those hidden costs hidden costs, like naming each of them. And then we come to this section about myths. So the way industrial agriculture is able to get away with externalizing their costs, not accounting for them, instead of internalizing them, is they come up with these really pervasive myths that they spend billions of dollars on. And they'd rather spend billions of dollars on their PR, on their marketing, on these myths, than actually make the changes to the food system so it serves everybody. Mm-hmm. Let's, I think it's, this is a great juncture to talk about that feed meat complex because there are so many hidden costs involved with that. So tell me what that means exactly, and then let's dive into some of those hidden costs. Absolutely. So the feed meat complex is essentially in the industrial agriculture regime, you have a majority of farmers either producing the feed grains to be fed to animals, so corn and soybeans largely, or they're producing the livestock that are raised in CAFOs or in intensive feedlots. And what it comes down to, so the feed grains are being produced, there's way too much supply, which keeps the cost low for the corporations, right? They can buy these really cheap grains to then feed to their livestock who are grown in CAFOs, who are grown in intensive agriculture, and they're able to take the profits. They're able to take the profits from all of that instead of A, paying a fair price, B, paying their farmers a fair price. And then all of that corporate revenue is then funneled into their lobbying efforts, into their marketing efforts that then go to the government and policymakers who then make policies that give these corporations greater subsidies so that that we can then start this cycle all over again. And what that comes down to on farms is it means that farmers are really stuck in this treadmill, meaning they don't have many choices about how they produce their food, why they produce it, because they're just trying to stay afloat, right? And then since the corporations have such great control, the consumers really also don't have a choice about what they eat unless they're a great investigative journalist 
And they also really don't have a choice about what the price they pay. Right. Well, I thought it was interesting because I've seen some of this evolve in my own community where these big industrial processing facilities promise jobs, right? This is so salient. Everybody wants jobs. Everybody wants to grow. But those externalized costs, which you mentioned in the report, such as the cost to roadways with these big trucks that go in and out from the plant. You even have data on how much these road repairs cost, the gravel, you know, it goes right down to the price of what we taxpayers are paying while the corporate entity walks away and takes those dollars out of the community. Yeah. And you know, it, one of the myths in the paper that you're referring to is that industrial agriculture is necessary to support rural communities and economies. And you hear this all the time. So we know that rural America has been left behind in many ways. You know, social services aren't really there. Schools aren't funded well. So industrial ag could come and say, hey, we've got all these jobs for you. Isn't that great? But what really happens when they move in is, yeah, because they're corporate entities, they're able to take advantage of corporate tax code, which means they're able to evade a lot of the taxes that they should be paying to keep up road costs, like keep up road repairs, all of those things. But really, that tax burden falls onto the community. This is happening at the same time when industrial agriculture, when, you know, these facilities become your neighbor, that lowers property values. So you're having these folks come in, they're increasing the tax burden while decreasing property values. But we also know that when it comes to jobs, that that argument is false. If you were to switch uh, corn soy rotations to vegetable production that would actually increase farm level sales, would increase wages, and there'd be about 6,000 new jobs if this was done on a county's worth of Midwest farmland. Wow. So we have industrial agriculture with this myth, but you know, when it comes down to it, it's unequivocally false. Exactly. And through the public health lens, my goodness, we want people to have more of a plant-based diet. In fact, there was some recent research showing that more plant-based diets improve the health of the microbiome, our gut health, and that helps improve our immune systems and makes us better able to handle things like COVID-19 or whatever the next pandemic might be. So it's a real win-win for us to get off of this industrial treadmill. And this report does a great job in bringing that to the fore. I want to take one break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Emily Miller. She is the Research and Policy Manager for the Family Farm Action Alliance, and she is the lead author of this fantastic report that we are diving into titled The Truth About Industrial Agriculture, A Fragile System Propped Up by Myths and Hidden Costs. And I want to talk about some of these myths now because not only are those myths given to communities when these industrial operations want to come into a community and expand, but they also become myths that are woven into policymakers' thinking as well as university departments. So, for example, I was recently testifying against CAFO expansion, confined animal feeding operations in Missouri. 
because I personally love clean water. I love our rivers and streams that we have here. And I know that these industrial farms harm water and air quality and public health, quality of life, in other words. And one of the individuals who was testifying in favor of CAFO expansion was actually affiliated with the Agricultural Economics Extension Department at the University of Missouri. And I was appalled that my tax dollars were actually going to have somebody speaking in favor of industry rather than supporting public health. How does this happen, Emily? Well, I think it it happens because some, you know, we're talking about these myths. I think often the economic argument comes before all of the the health concerns. And I want to back up and say, you know, when it comes to industrial agriculture is able to proliferate because of decisive policy decisions, right? So there's this big package of legislation called the Farm Bill. It gets renewed every five years on the federal level. And the reason industrial agriculture is able to persist is because so many of these policies cater to that model because of the myths. Now, in 2023 is when the next farm bill is coming up. And if we're to make transformative change, we really need to, we need to address these pervasive myths. So to your point, you know, it sounds like this person who is talking is probably an economist. You know, there are certain lanes of economists who really only look at the markets. But there's another branch of economists that kind of look at ecological systems and and think, you know, public health and clean water is just as important, if not more important, than a functioning market. And so industrial ag is able, and economists who work for them are able to get away with this because they're not required to look at their environmental impact. They aren't required to look at the life cycle emissions inventory And they don't have to do that because of the policy that is written for them. So that's why it becomes so important to take these myths head on and be able to combat those when they do come up, like at the hearing that you were at. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, too, about the influence that is very hard to discover, the influence of dollars that go into land-grant institutions as well as the pockets of our legislators. You know, it's kind of hard to bite the hand that feeds you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, and I don't think a lot of people really, or some people, it's not intentional, right? You know, I went to Iowa State. I was an animal science major. I thought animal science was the way to feed more people. Right. Um, but it wasn't until I was in those classrooms and instead of learning how to feed more people, it was how do you make the greatest profit per animal unit <sighs> and really had to ask questions. And, and sometimes that was really hard to do. You know, people got defensive. So that's why if I were at Iowa State and a paper like this existed and I was curious, gosh, I would have grabbed onto it and really been able to, you know, my questions would have been affirmed. Like, you're not crazy. You know, you aren't trying to start a fight. You're really just trying to get down to the truth and actually, you know, make an agriculture that's good for everyone. And so I really hope this paper can be a tool for folks who have already started asking those questions and for folks who maybe just want to make agriculture better and they don't quite know how to yet. Exactly. You know, one of the myths that you bring forth is that there are no alternatives to the industrial agri-food system. Because what I'm told, you know, in the dietetics profession is that 
industrial agriculture is modern. The, the word industrial is rarely, if ever, used. It's always the word modern is used instead of industrial. And so, you know, you think, well, I don't want to be doing something that's backwards or not modern, right? So that feeds into your agreement with those myths. So the words that are used are so critical. And as a person who is hoping to change the system, because we have to, yeah, I think it's really important that we pay attention to those words. Talk to me a little bit about rhetoric and how we can change the way we talk and think about this. Absolutely. No, I mean, semantics, right? <laughs> um, that's how those billions of PR dollars are being used to hold up this system. But yeah, that is a common backlash of, you know, that's not modern or that's backwards. And I struggle to wrap my head around that because so many scientific innovations have been made, biotechnological changes have been made. And by saying that we don't want this form of industrial agriculture, it does not mean that we also don't want all of these innovations that have been made that would allow farmers to produce food the way they want to produce. And this is where antitrust and, and fair markets really comes into play, because if farmers really had more autonomy and really had more choices about growing their food in an environmentally friendly way or growing food for their regional food system, you know, I'm willing to bet that a lot of farmers would move that way if it was actually a viable option for them. So I don't see anything that's not modern about growing food in a way that is good for the land and, and will allow the food system to be more resilient in the face of future pandemics or more plant fires. You know, I think that's really forward looking and modern in itself. I'm really glad you brought up the word resilience because when I think about, okay, how are we going to produce food to feed ourselves well, literally preventing chronic disease, keeping us with a high quality of life, I think that we need to look at the word resilient and what is it that makes agriculture resilient? So we want healthy soil, we want more biodiversity. You've got a great section in here on environment and the environmental costs related to this industrial agriculture. And those costs are rarely brought forth, but you have a section on climate. And I, because we are just seeing such devastation nationally as well as globally with regard to fires and extreme heat on the West Coast, and we've got these incredibly heavy rains in the Midwest, same thing on the East Coast. We've seen droughts. You've got dollar values associated with those environmental challenges, and the industrial model does not improve our ability to be resilient in how we grow our food. What would you say about all of this? Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah, it, it's clear that these environmental problems, inclement weather, unpredictable weather and climate change are, are costing folks more money. It's costing farmers more money. And, you know, the rhetoric around this is perhaps, you know, this unprecedented flood or this unprecedented drought or this fire. Like, But we're saying it's unprecedented, but it keeps happening. So that's why we need to really take a hard look at the environmental cost of how we produce things. So that means corporations need to be accountable to the pollution they create, and they also need to be responsible for mitigating that 
or for paying for that. And so that's where also taxpayer dollars, our taxpayer dollars should be funneled into programs and to be used to mitigate these types of problems, you know, whether that be new policies or programs, but it shouldn't be funneled into letting the same type of agriculture persist that isn't reliant or resilient in the face of all of these challenges. So that's where it comes down to increasing local and regional food systems that really creates kind of these redundancies that are important when there is a flood or there is a fire. Because when one link in the chain is taken out, that doesn't mean that the rest of the structure falls down. There's Mm. other things to fall back on. Right, exactly. And you've got a great section on the cost of extreme weather. And it's really hard to wrap our heads around some of these numbers. But Mm -hmm. just for an example, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration estimates that extreme weather events from 1980 to 2020 have cost $1.175 trillion. These numbers are huge. We can't really fathom that. But on a per farm basis, we can see the devastation when crops are lost and when farmers are committing suicide over some of these devastating events. So this is serious business. This is a really timely and important report. I want to ask you, Emily, are there any myths or pieces of this report that you want to bring out for sure that I might not have touched on? I mean, you, you, we, we touched on all of them. One that really gets me fired up and is kind of what we've, you know, we've alluded to, but one of the biggest myths is that industrial ag is the only way to keep retail prices affordable for folks. And there's one sentence in the, the paper that refutes that. You know, in dollar terms, if you spent $20 on food in the year 2000, that equivalent buying the same amount of food in 2020 would cost you $34, so 14 more dollars. And this is just really a great example of how concentrated corporate industrial ag power and having these myths is really just a facade for them to gather more profit. It's not making food prices lower. Consumers are being duped. Farmers are being gouged. And it's all for the sake of profits of industrial ag corporations. And when it comes down to it, that's where our taxpayer dollars are going. And it's to the detriment of taxpayers, farmers, and communities. How would you like to see this report used? You know, we touched on it before, but we have a farm bill coming up in 2023. And to be able to make transformative change to the agriculture that's good for all of us, we must refute these myths and we must change the narrative around them. So I would love for folks to go to our website, familyfarmaction.org, give the report a read, send it to your legislator, send it to your friends and advocates because it's going to take all of us if we're going to get this done. Absolutely. And I I know I want to share it with my friends and colleagues in the public health community and to encourage anyone who wants to do like write editorials or op-eds, talking to their local legislators, as you mentioned, to have this fact-based document in front of us to help move our mission forward. So unfortunately, Emily, we are out of time, but I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Emily Miller. She is the Research and Policy Manager for the Family Farm Action Alliance. She's the lead author of the excellent report titled The Truth About Industrial Agriculture, A Fragile System Propped Up by Myths and Hidden Costs. Thank you so much for all of your hard work on this report. And I'll make sure that our listeners have a link to it and your website. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. 